So uh, our practice in our church is we believe in the inspiration of God, uh, the inspiration of his word. And so out of reverence for that, would you stand wherever you are uh, for its reading? It comes to us today from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 15. This is God's answer to a prayer that Solomon had prayed one chapter earlier. God says, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church, and may it allow us to know what God is doing in this incredibly uh, different, unusual, painful season in our lives, and that we would know even more how he would want us to respond. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and you may be seated. My grandfather, Donald Alexander Swanson, uh, was a banker uh, on Wall Street in New York City. His office building address was one Wall Street at the very lower end of Manhattan, and it sat just across the street from the famed Trinity Church. And he used to tell my dad that he would take his brown bag lunch, and on most days, he would walk across the street and he would sit in the pews of Trinity Church and he would eat his lunch and pray. And he told my dad, that's how I got through the rough times. See, my grandfather was only 32 years old when the stock market crashed in 1929. It was only four years later when he brought my dad home from the hospital, his firstborn child. Can you imagine what that was like? to bring your firstborn child into the world and home from the hospital in that kind of economic hardship, with that kind of economic future stretching out before them, I can't imagine what that was like. But my dad used to tell me stories about the sacrifices that his dad, my grandfather, would make for him. There were years when he would go without a coat or he would go without a wool hat that men wore in those days in order for my dad to have a, a baseball bat or a, or a glove of some kind. There was always this understanding that you couldn't have both, that sacrifices had to be made. And even as I grew up, I was always an inquisitive child. I was asking questions. I wanted to know my grandfather. He lived in New York. I lived in Dallas. He was kind of this mysterious figure. And he would come to visit us in Dallas and we would go on these long walks. And even as a little boy, I'd be asking him questions. And my dad had already told me some of those stories, but I would say to him, grandfather, tell me about what that was like. I can't imagine how hard that was. And what, he was not a talkative man and he really didn't have much to say. He just said, well, I guess we just did what we had to. And it's interesting because I've heard from other men who lived in and survived the Second World War say something similar. They don't talk about it much either. When I've asked them about their experiences, men in our church, men in other churches that I've served, I'd say, well, what was that like? What, tell me about it. And, and their answer was the same. You know, we got through it. We did what we had to do. And I've thought about those 
responses so often of late as I reflect on our current cultural moment, on what is happening to us in our world, because clearly this is not the first time that something like this has happened in our world, and it won't be the last, but it is our time. It is our time and our season. Human history is filled. It is etched with moments, circumstances, events in which civilizations and cultures and societies were stretched to their maximum when they were forced to adapt and change and grow in order to survive. It tested the mettle of human beings. It tested the human spirit. And as I look at what's happening to us, I'm not sure that this is not the most significant thing even more significant than the Second World War. When I've read from what other people are saying today, at least in the Second World War, we could see the enemy. We knew who was trying to bomb us in this current season. There's a much greater psychological unknown. We can't see the enemy. We don't know how it attacks, and we don't know what's going to end. Commentators are saying the psychological impact could last much longer and be much deeper. So even as I have prayed about my own anxieties and fears, and I can assure you today, I have them. But in spite of those, as I've prayed, I cannot help but feel emboldened that this is our time, that this is our church's privilege and opportunity, that as the Christian community, not just First Press, but we as Christian men and women have the privilege in this season to demonstrate faithfulness, to show before the world how the Christian community responds to crisis, that we are not gonna melt into chaos, but we're gonna live with integrity. We're gonna live in a servant-minded way, loving and caring for our neighbor, that we're not going to become panicked, but we're gonna live in peace because we believe that God is in fact on the throne, that we have the privilege now to demonstrate for our children You know what? This is what faithfulness looks like. When the chips are down and when crisis comes, this is how you live. Because here's the deal. It's going to happen to you too, just as it's happening to us now. So here's how you do it. This is how you live in times of crisis. C.S. Lewis, his season, his era, his moment was the Second World War. It was the atomic age. And he wrote of that time, how are we to live In an atomic age, I'm tempted to reply why, as you would have in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you were already living in an age of cancer, paralysis, air raids, railway, and motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation, If we are to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. Obviously, we're not huddled together doing much these days, but I think you see his point. Friends, what's happening to us isn't novel. It's happened before. And it's going to happen again. The only difference, life has always been lived on a precipice. There's always been a very thin veil between life and death. There have always been things that risked our way of life, that risked our own personal lives and the lives of those we loved. 
But I think the only difference is that in recent years, we've just gotten better of covering that up by the myriad of distractions that we've created in our culture, things that distract the mind from the realities that we would rather avoid. We've kind of gotten lost in that. But see, what's happened is all that's been stripped from us so that now human beings around the globe are asking bigger questions. They're trying to figure out and understand how do I beat back the fears and then the anxieties that I feel about the fact that the world seems broken. Friends, that's why I am so thankful to know and to trust in God through Jesus Christ because the church has the privilege today to speak into that world. And some would say, oh, the, the Christian church has no answers for this. And while I agree, we'll never be able to know the, the answer to the question, why? We don't know the mind of God in that, but we can answer a lot of other questions. We can answer the what and the who and the how. And so I think there is much that the scripture and the church can say to speak the words of God, to speak words of hope and growth and truth that will see us through this time. So that's what brings us to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 15 this morning. I put this on my Instagram page several weeks ago. And, and not only me, but many other pastors did because of the contents. It's so similar to what is happening in our world. So just in terms of background, uh, know that the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are history books. They're written to record the history of the people of Israel. So they start with the genealogies of the 12 tribes and they move through the history of Israel to David's kingship, uh, to Solomon building the temple, to the people of God then rebelling, the Babylonians coming in and destroying Jerusalem and the temple and the people being taken into exile. And then Cyrus comes to power as king in Persia and he ends the exile. He says, my people can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and their temple. And that's the moment when Ezra starts to write First and Second Chronicles. So he's writing a history of the people of Israel as they are entering their post-exilic time. They're going back to a destroyed Jerusalem. So it's through that lens that Ezra's looking at history. So you know, as the writer, that he wants to try to encourage and lift the people in what is a challenging and a difficult time. So as he's writing this history, he gets to Second Chronicles chapter 7 chapter six and seven. And it's the time when Solomon has finished building the temple. And it's this glorious, wonderful, celebratory time in the history of their people. This is the place where God is going to come and dwell. So Solomon comes to dedicate the temple. And in chapter six, verse 26, he prays a prayer. And here's the prayer. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, when famine or plague comes to the land, or blight, or locusts, or grasshoppers, when they confess and turn back before you in this temple, then hear them and forgive them and bring them back to the land that you gave them. So then, that's chapter 6. Then in Second Chronicles 7, you get God's answer to Solomon. It doesn't happen immediately after this. It happens in a vision that God appears at night to Solomon and he answers the prayer. But why do we pay attention to it today? Because Solomon's saying, when, when you start these things happening in the earth and what do we see? 
around the world today, terrible drought in Australia causing enormous fires, loss of property and life and crops. Right now in Africa, there is the worst plague of locusts. I don't know if you knew this or not. The worst plague of locusts in Africa in decades, threatening crops and livestock. And now there's a worldwide pandemic, a plague. Solomon talks about all three of those things. So I think that if we in the church have received this word from God, I think we'd be wise to pay attention to what's happening here and to see what we can glean from God's word to us in the situation in which we live today. So let's dig into this. Number one, know that God is always forming, shaping, chastening, disciplining, and judging his people and the world. God didn't just wind up the earth and start it up and let it go. Now he stands back watching. That's not who God is. God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then he controls everything. And God then as a sovereign God is at work in what is happening. And as I said earlier, I cannot for one minute claim to know the mind of God. I don't know why this virus is ravaging the earth in the way that it has, but I do know this. I do know that God is at work in it. I know that through it, even the things that are difficult and tragic and painful, God is always going to use those things for his greater good. God wants to teach us in this. He wants to form us. He wants to shape us. And as a loving parent, he wants to discipline us. When we're disobedient, yes, when a world rebels, he wants to judge us. And I think it's quite amazing when you consider the size and the scope of what is happening in the earth, when you think of what has transpired. I came across this quote by a woman named Michelle Perez Pope. And as far as I can tell, I've done a lot of research and I don't think she's like a famous person. She didn't have a blue check by her name on Twitter, you know? And, and I, I've tried to look her up. I think she's someone just like you or me, but she wrote these words. In three short months, just like he did with the plagues of Egypt, God has taken away everything we worship. God said, do you want to worship athletes? I'll shut down the stadiums. You want to worship musicians? I'll shut down the civic centers. You want to worship actors? I'll shut down the theaters. You want to worship money? I'll shut down the economy and collapse the stock market. You don't want to go to church and worship me? I'll make it where you can't go to church. Maybe we don't need a vaccine. Maybe we need to take this time of isolation from the distractions of the world and have a personal revival where we focus on the only thing in the world that really matters, and that's Jesus. Friends, when you consider the size and scope of what has happened, I believe these bear the seeds of spiritual renewal and revival because throughout human history, when has revival come? It's come in the midst of hardships. I mean, in effect, the world has been stopped dead in its tracks. I mean, imagine that. Could you have ever conceived that something could bring the world to its knees to remove everything that we've depended on so that our focus has become singular in the way that it has right now? I couldn't conceive of it until now, and yet here we are. See, I think those bear the seeds of renewal, again from C.S. Lewis. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist 
under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed that search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would have never begun. See, the seeds to our revival, they're born out of our insecurities. It's in our insecurity and our hardship that we begin to search for answers to the bigger questions in life. Do you see how God could be doing this? He's already blown up the whole notion of the ideology of our time, the ideology of individualism. He said this is woefully inadequate because people, for those who believe that, if you think that now in the midst of sheltering in place, in the midst of all the loss of life, if you think you can control that or you would have the power to do what you need to do and provide the needs of your individual life, that's been blown up. And it raises the question then, if I'm not in control, if I'm not actually the Lord of my own life, then who is? It raises those bigger existential questions. So for that reason, know this, it's a hard time but friends, in some ways, I welcome it so that the propitious hand of the providence of our God could use the church and her witness to draw all people to himself. In our hardships, the seeds of revival are born as God forms and shapes and teaches and chastens and disciplines those that he loves. So the second question then if that's what God is doing, he's always doing that as sovereign God, then what is our response? What is our response to what is happening in the world? Well, thankfully, in the text, God gives us a pretty simple answer. It's not complicated. It's kind of, it could be titled, get back to the basics. In verse 14, God answers Solomon's prayer. And here's what he says. And, I, you know, it's interesting that Solomon, when he prays the prayer in chapter 6, he assumes that Israel's gonna rebel. He, is, he knows what people are gonna do. And I think God knows that about us as well. We're possessed of a sinful heart, but his promise here is true. He says, if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll hear their land. God says, look, when they do that, when they rebel against me, if they'll do this, if they'll do these four things, then I heal them. I'll heal their land, I'll bring them back to me. Friends, I sure hope we're listening. I hope the church is listening. I hope the world is listening. Just four things, humble, pray, seek his face, and turn. The first thing is humility. You know, nothing humbles a person like having everything that they depend on stripped away from them but humility would generally be defined as adopting a posture before God that is contrite and dependent, where we acknowledge, God, I've got no power. I'm not in control of anything. I am wholly dependent on you. That's humility. But see, what we've been fed for so long in the liturgy of our culture, the things that we're taught over and over again that shape us, the liturgy of our lives, is what? We've been taught self-sufficiency that we should depend on ourselves. Humility is the opposite. You know, it reminds me, I've thought about this. You know, when my kids were little and when I was little, I was completely enamored of driving my parents' car or just the thought of driving. 
And so my parents, and even when my kids were little, you could buy something, you could either stick on the dashboard back before kids were in car seats, that's what I did, or you could stick it on the back of the seat, a steering wheel. So when mom or dad are up there driving, you know, me, I was over there going like this, and I thought, hey, I'm driving the car just like that, right? And, and that's what our culture has come to believe. We're over here going like this, thinking we're driving the car. People, we ain't driving the car. We've never driven the car. And now we've come to a place where we are completely aware of that. And that's why the Bible says over and over again, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. It's not about self, it's about self-sacrifice. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Friends, God's humbling us under his mighty hand, but he will lift us up. What about the model and the manner of the life of Jesus? Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We worship a God who demonstrated for us what humility is. So how do we respond in this season? I pray that we would respond in the exact same ways as the words of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross, I cling. May we humble ourselves before the Lord. And then he says, pray. Pray as Brett alluded to earlier. I bet in this season that you've spent more time praying in the last two weeks than you have in the two years before that. If we're not in control, then God says what we need to do is to begin to build a relationship with the person who is. So how does that work? Prayer, conversation, dialogue, where we create the environment. And friends, you've been given a great gift because most of us have more time to do things like praying. And so we come before the Lord with our desires it's what he invites us to share. Tell me the desires of your heart. Tell me where you're struggling. And then we listen as we engage his word and we listen to what God has already said and we do it consistently. Ephesians 6.18 says this, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So the, the reality is, people, we might not know a whole lot about prayer. You may feel like, well, gosh, I don't know how to do this. I haven't done it much. I don't know what to say. I don't really know how to look for God's answers or to see what he's doing. Prayer is indeed a mystery in many ways. But you know what? We don't have to figure it all out. We pray as an act of obedience because God commands us. He says, pray, do this. And as it becomes part of the liturgy of our lives, something we do over and over and over again, it shapes us and it forms us in a deeper relationship with God. And please know that you don't have to get worried about words and phrases and that you've got to put the words in just the right order in order for God to answer. Friends, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through groans too deep for words. So just know you don't even know 
what to pray, if you can even form the words, that the Spirit's going to take your heart. And that's really what God wants more than anything. Just give him your heart, and the Spirit's going to take those groans and weave them into beautiful words before the throne of God's grace. And know this too, you can pray the hard stuff. If Job shouted his anger and his frustration to God and Job was his faithful servant, if Jesus upon the cross prayed, cried out to the Lord in this holy week, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can express himself prayerfully in that way, then we are allowed those moments as well. God says, bring me your heart. So we humble ourselves, we pray, and then we're told to seek his face. It's a phrase that's actually used a number of times in scripture, seek my face, seek his face. And we think, well, isn't that the same thing as praying? It means actually something far deeper. It means something about intimacy. To seek the face of God is to seek God purely for who he is, to wanna know him in all of his depths. So it's not just praying, but it's pursuing. It's developing the spiritual disciplines of our lives that will draw us consistently into relationship with God so that the rebellion of our heart will be quelled and we will move more faithfully towards him. And see, that may well be the challenge of these days is seek the face. When he says, seek my face, that means we're seeking God just for who he is, not for his benefits. And some of you right now are rattled because up until this point, you've loved God because of the benefits. You've loved God because of the blessing. But the question in this season, will you seek his face because he's worthy? Will you seek his face because he's enthroned as God above? Will you seek his face even when the circumstances of your life have changed for the worse? Will you still love him? Can we say that the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're called to seek his face, to be in his presence just because of who he is, because he alone is worthy. He is God. And then the last thing he says, turn. If you will turn from the path that you are on and turn back to the path that leads towards me, that's the seeds of our revival. And that's the place where you and I need to be reflecting and thinking and praying about what's happening in our lives. We have the privilege right now, we have the time to assess, how have I been living? Have I been walking in the right way? And that's what I love about the word turn. It's a physical word. It means that you're going in one direction and it means that you're gonna do a 180. You're gonna turn in the exact opposite direction, the way that leads to wickedness and sin. God says, turn, and now I'm gonna walk towards the things of God. So friends, the question for us in terms of how we respond to faithfully living in these days, what in our lives is God calling us to turn away from? What is he calling you to turn away from today? Is he calling you to turn away from your obsession with work and money and things and stuff or power or prestige or status? Is he calling you to turn away from things that you use to numb you like drugs 
and alcohol? Is he calling you to turn away from pornography or an illicit relationship? What is God calling you to turn away from? That's where the seeds of revival begin to be planted because we see our lives for what it is, that what we have been pursuing is empty and will leave us wanting. But now through the means of a virus, a pandemic that stopped us in our tracks, no, I don't welcome. I don't welcome the pain or the heartache or the loss. I grieve that and I lament that as well we should. But what I believe to be true about God is that as God who is sovereign, he's at work in all of us. He's in work in all of it. And if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn, what does he say? That's where I'm gonna bring healing. That's when I'll hear from heaven and I'm gonna forgive you. That's where everything starts to change. So yes, God is at work. We don't know the answer to the why question. And people, I know this is hard, but you know the blessing that comes out of this? It's this wonderful thing called clarity. I don't know about you, but I've sure noticed in this season that all the unimportant things, they sort of disappear. You know, I'm not worried right now about the things I was worried about two months ago. You know, all the drama and the pettiness of life, it seems to fade and the most important things, the things that we love, the things that matter, have been brought to the fore. And in some ways, only God could do that. Only God could stop the world to get our attention, to say, let me shape you. Let me draw you unto myself. And yes, to do that requires our yielding. It requires our humility, our prayer, it requires our turning. And so friends, I know it's a difficult and confusing time, but I wanna pray for you this morning that God is gonna use it in your life as the seeds of spiritual renewal and revival or perhaps even conversion to God in Christ because you've never had the answer to these questions. You always thought you were in control. Or perhaps the time today is to humble yourself before the Lord. So would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I thank you, not for a virus, not for its pain and suffering, not for the economic hardships, not for the losses, Lord, all those things. I, we don't welcome those, but we do believe that in your sovereignty, if you allowed it, you're gonna work through it. And I pray that we would yield to the movement of your spirit in our lives, that having been stripped of everything that we've depended on up until now, that we would turn to you, that we would turn to the hope that we find in Jesus. So Lord, I pray for the turning of people's lives right now. And I wanna invite them, Lord, what is it that they need to turn away from? I pray that they would give that thing to you in prayer right now. Lord, I give you Lord, I give you, I'm turning away from it spiritually. I don't want it anymore. I realize it's empty and I wanna to turn to you in faith. 
Lord, I want to turn away from my anxieties and my fears, which have largely arisen out of my belief that I'm in control and now I feel like I'm not in control. But Lord, impress upon me yet again as I turn away from that, that you are on the throne, that you are sovereign and that I can depend on you. I turn away from those things and I turn towards your throne of grace. And Lord, I pray for that person who just for whatever reason is listening to this and they've never professed faith in you as Savior and Lord. They've always thought that they could handle life. But like the rest of us, they've been stripped bare of everything that they thought would give them the life they wanted. Lord, I pray that that person would drop to their knees and cry out to you, Lord Jesus, I turn away from the things of this world and I turn my heart to you. Would you receive me, Lord Christ, by the work of your cross and your resurrection? Lord, heal us. Heal our land, heal our world as we trust in you, Lord God Almighty. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord, amen.